As we get started, would you join me in prayer? Dear God, we ask that you would make us aware of your presence here with us as we try and enter into this story of death and life. Uh, We'd rather not do that alone. As we prepare for the cross, we know we don't have to do that alone. And yet these darker parts of the journey can be lonely. Care for us and comfort us in all the ways that we feel troubled. Meet us even in our pain. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn to John 11, and we're going to start there today. This is a story, last week we preached from John 12, which is the story that happens after this story of Lazarus, but we're going to back up this week and talk about this particular story. If you remember, we're in the middle of a four-week series that will take us into the first Sunday of Easter, reflecting on death as a way of understanding new life. So last week we talked about preparing the body, and there's this story of Jesus being anointed for his own death. This week we're talking about what it's like to sit with the dead, with this story from Lazarus. But before we get into that, we need to back up for a second, and we have to talk a little bit about Greek philosophy, because on a rainy day, when it's an hour too early, this is exactly what you want to talk about. It's Greek philosophy. But, but we have to, because we've got to understand this book, uh, this gospel, John's gospel, is, is influenced more than any other with this worldview that sort of permeated the air around the time that it was written and the time that it would have been read. And you may think this is a very old subject matter, but this thinking, Hellenistic philosophy, is sort of the air we breathe in Western society. We don't always think of it that way, but it just sort of is the way that we see things. So what we've got here is this classic split that happens. It's called dualism, and it says that there are, everything falls into two sort of categories. One of these categories is good or high, higher things, and then there are the lower things or, or the parts that are corruptible. And it's really simply split up in this list for you that you can read. Uh, if you look at this list, you can start to see the way that our own understandings of faith and the world around us are influenced by this philosophy. So you've got on one side here, soul. That obviously is on the good side. And then you've got on the other side, the body. But what corresponds with these two things is really important. So for soul, you have all of these sort of things. So like soul is logic or is rationality, which is a very high ideal. And with the body comes the irrational or the emotional. With soul, you've got something that is everlasting. But with, with the body side of things, the flesh, the material world, you have something that's, that's temporary or contingent. And this is really important. On this side over here, the spirit, soul side of things, uh, nothing changes. There is stability present and control. But on, on the body side, on this flesh side, there, there is always a steady 
state of decay. Now that one right there I don't have to outline very long. We all have these bodies, we are these bodies, and in various degrees these bodies don't work like they're supposed to. Amen. On this side is heaven, that realm where God inhabits and is active, and then on the other side is earth or the world. And then these two words here are really important. On this side you've got logos, and on this side you've got sark. So logos, if you remember from the beginning of John's gospel, John 1, it starts off with, in the beginning was what? The word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. That word, word, is the word logos. And logos is this overarching principle of spiritual rationality for the Greeks. Logos is whatever God is, that is what logos is. But if you keep reading in John chapter 1, you get to this beautiful line. Some of you remember it. But I'll read it for you. Uh, This is verse 14 in John 1. The word became what? Became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for flesh is the word sarks. So what happens in John's gospel, it's a beautiful way. It's it's a bait and switch, basically, where the writer has everybody... uh, the native religious understanding is woven through John's gospel for the first 13 verses, and everybody would have been clapping their hands because they knew this is exactly what God is like, this pure rationality, this light as opposed to darkness, and everything's made through the word. And then all of a sudden John flips it and says, and then the word became flesh, and it's as though these two, these two pieces that are supposed to be kept apart collide with one another. This is... The incarnation. This is the center of our gospel. That this is not an either or kind of world, but because of what Christ has done, it's both and. About a year ago, some of you who are youth maybe remember if you were part of a disciple now, you saw this. Uh, this is a lot of maybe what we understand to be the soul and the body. We've got this shell, this prison, you might could say, and then the soul sort of finds home within the body. This is something that maybe is familiar to some of us. Now, what happens when you die? Anybody? What happens to that little... They separate. Somebody said your soul does what? Goes to heaven? Yeah, it's this, this kind of evacuation of the body. And the body's left to decay in the ground, and then the soul does what? Rises up. It's as, and what happens is the list gets pulled apart again. So whereas before the two are joined, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. For a lot of Christians, where the story is headed is in, in death and into eternity, those two are torn apart again. The, the problem with this is that is actually not the witness of Scripture. That's the witness of another philosophy that's worked its way in over time. This is what makes it particularly hard to talk about death, because it's easy, easier, if the body doesn't matter, because immediately upon death, we can start to make up all of these cliche rationalities for what it means that someone has died. It's okay, it's okay, they've been freed from that prison, that's in the ground now, and their soul is finally untethered and free to be with God. There's this, uh, it's actually kind of a lovely poem, so I'm going to read it for you, but it's terrible as well. Uh, That's okay. Terrible things can be lovely too. 
This is Henry Scott Holland. If anybody recognizes this line, I'm going to read just a bit of this very often read at funerals. But see if you can hear this dualism working. This death has happened, but death isn't really that big of a deal because death only affects the part of us that was corruptible. And then the other part of us is now safe. Death is nothing at all, he says. It doesn't count. I've only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. I am I, and you are you, and the old life that we lived so fondly together is untouched, is unchanged. Whatever we were to each other, that we still are. Call me by my old familiar name. Speak of me in the easy way, which you always did. Put no difference in your tone. Wear no forced air of solemn solemnity or sorrow. Laugh as we always laughed at the little jokes we enjoyed. Play, smile, think of me, pray for me. There is absolute and unbroken continuity. What is this death but a negligible accident? Why should I be out of mind because I'm out of sight? And but waiting for you for an interval somewhere very near, just around the corner, all is well, nothing is hurt, nothing is lost. One brief moment, and it will all be as it was before. It's lovely. Those words are lovely. But, but they minimize things. Let's be honest with each other. They take what is a travesty, what is, if there is anything that is discontinuous that breaks us apart, it is being separate from one another. And death is that which separates us in the most existential of senses. I am here and you're here, but there will come a time where one of us will not be here anymore. And we could pretend or we could say it's okay, it's just it's like a twinkling of the eye and it will all be over again. But it still feels all of the things that it feels. The poem is a really beautiful, it's a really beautiful cliche. So I asked this week when I was preparing for the sermon on Facebook and, and elsewhere, I said to everybody, and some of you answered to me, tell me some of the cliches you've heard around suffering or around death. And I've never posted anything online that's gotten this much attention or response. And so I've got a bunch of them here for you, and I won't read all of them, but this is just a, a taste of all of the things that are said and done. And, and what this list tells me is that uh, it is easier to live in words that fit on bumper stickers and in cliches when you can separate out the mind and the body, when you can separate out the soul and the flesh, heaven and earth. There was a couple that were too sad to put in here. God never gives you more than you can handle. Everything happens for a reason. They're in a better place. God needed an, another. These two, are, you've heard these before, and they're the, the living worst. God needed another angel and then God needed another rose in his garden, which was said to someone who had just lost a child. <laughs> Those two make me think, I was unaware that God actually needed anything. But God seems to be very lacking in lots of things, and death fixes that. It was just her time. God was saving her for something worse, from something worse than death. Another angel got her wings. I'm unclear where that is in Scripture. But there it is. Think of all those happy reunions in heaven. This is an awful one. God only tests those strong enough to handle it. I want to be very weak, if that's the rule. They wouldn't want us to cry for them here because they're so happy up there. God's teaching you a lesson. It's your job to find out what the lesson is. 
oh, at least you have the other child is a terrible one. I hope you're writing these down so that you never have to say them. It's all part of God's plan. Okay, and the last one's my favorite. You can read the rest if you want to later or go on Facebook. Now you can take that insurance money and go on your dream vacation. I don't know who, was that, who that was. This list, though, it reminds me of how difficult it is to encounter death and then to move through it. It really, it really is. There's an entire greeting card industry built on these kinds of sayings. But it moves too quickly. It just does. It moves too quickly through what's, what is a rupture. All right. Before we keep going, we need to take a break for a puppy. This isn't a bait and switch, by the way. This is part of the sermon. It's not just a breather so that you can catch your your breath again before we talk about death some more. When I was a kid and I lived in New Orleans, there was this walking path that me and my brother would take, and it was behind these houses, and it was their back fence. And when you come up to this one house, the back fence, there were these two basset hounds, and they are the grossest dogs ever. Have you ever seen a basset hound? Now, they're very cute when you're from a distance, but when you get closer, you realize that they glisten from jaw to jaw with slobber. And there were two of them, and and one of their names was Lazarus. And so... Uh, so I get to show you a puppy picture because of that. The story is that they, this uh, guy bought these two dogs, and it was a, a mom who was pregnant, and so he paid extra because he was going to get two basset hounds out of this one dog. When the baby was born, the puppy was born, it was not breathing, and so they did some version of puppy CPR on it. I didn't know that was a thing you could do, and brought the puppy back, and so they named it Lazarus. This story could be completely untrue because I was told it when I was eight, but I believed it. And I just assumed that, yes, of course it happened. Uh, So if you were part of our sermon study group, I showed you all this picture, and then we never talked about it. So this is me paying my dues to you and telling you about the puppy. Um, Let's talk about this story in John chapter 11. It's this grief in Bethany. If you've got a Bible, turn to it. We're going to move around back and forth in John's gospel, and then we might visit Ezekiel as well. But this story... And this is actually the first set of scripture that I ever preached on. The first sermon I wrote was on, was on John 11. And some of the stuff that I worked out there holds up. So you'll hear some of it today. But it's this really sad story. And it turns out good in the end. But it takes some weird twists and turns to get there. So Jesus, if he has best friends, this family, these are his best friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I don't know how long they knew each other. We don't know. But he cares for them deeply. And he gets word that Lazarus is sick and falling ill close to death. The problem is where Lazarus is located in Bethany is not a safe place for Jesus to go visit just any time that he wants to. And so there's this tension between I would really need to go see my friend And if I go there, there's a really good chance I'm going to get killed before it's my time. And you can feel that tension as you read John chapter 11. So he shows up, shows up late, Lazarus is dead. If you read the story, and we're we're not going to read it verse for verse, but it reads almost like a comedy where every once in a while Jesus gives this kind of wink and a nod to the listeners and also to the disciples. Like he keeps saying that Lazarus is sleeping, and then the disciples say, well, if he's just sleeping, then he'll wake up when his alarm clock goes off. And then Jesus says, you're quite dense. When I say sleeping, I actually mean he is dead. Lazarus is dead. Do you get it? Lazarus is dead. 
And then they say, well, let's go see him so that we can die too. And Jesus goes, you're so dense. That's not where this story is headed. He says to Martha when Martha greets him, your brother will rise again. If I go back a couple slides and I show you all those cliches, that must have been like a first century cliche. He will rise again. Because Martha says, I know he's going to rise again. I've got 17 greeting cards back in my house that say he will rise again at the end of days. We know where this story is headed. Jesus flips it and says, no, he will rise again. There is a resurrection, but, but that happens to be standing in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So Martha believes and goes and gets Mary, and Mary shows up. She falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. This is a lot of blame, by the way, to be placed on Jesus in this situation. This is the problem if you're somebody who raises people from the dead, is everybody wants a little bit. If you'd have been here, my brother would still be alive. Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Now, this word for for deeply moved in his spirit, it's this beautiful Greek phrase for he, he snorted in anger. It wasn't just that he was troubled and he kind of got a a somber expression about him. He was mad. The next verse is that he was deeply troubled. It was like his insides were stirring. There's this Jesus. This is not the image I have of Jesus in this story, of snorting with anger. My daughter snorts with anger. If you know Ruthie, anytime she gets frustrated, she... (laughs) And where does she get it from? From me, because I snort with anger a lot whenever I get frustrated. I don't know where I got that from, but yeah... And so there's this Jesus standing in the midst of all these people who are crying, and he's getting really, really angry and worked up, stirred up inside. And then this, this happens. They say, come and see the Lord. In verse 35, that all kids memorize and they have to memorize a scripture, says what? Jesus wept. We all know that because it gets credited with being the shortest verse in the Bible. It's not the shortest verse in the Bible, except for in English. This is the moment when everything that's broken breaks God's heart. Now here's the trouble. The first time that I studied the scripture for a sermon that I encountered, and I want to toss it out there for you today as well, uh, and it's, it's this, why, why is Jesus crying? In our sermon group on Monday, we talked about this question, why, why the tears? And here's the real reason I want to know the answer, because Jesus knows where this story is headed. How does the story of Lazarus end, somebody? Yeah, he's, he's raised from the, like the puppy. Lazarus doesn't stay dead. In some ways, this is like, well, if you're Jesus, this isn't a truly broken situation. Why, why is he so broken up about it? It doesn't just end with his brokenness and his crying. There's this this scene that happens right after that. Jesus, once again deeply moved, comes to the tomb. Standing in front of this tomb, stone rolled over the front, and he's snorting again with anger. Take away the stone. But Lord, by this time, 
he will stink because he's been dead for four days. Then Jesus said, don't I tell you before to believe, and you're going to see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you, for you have heard me. I know that you've always heard me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Deiro exo, is what it says. The loud voice, come out. Now, my voice is gone for some reason this week because I've been speaking too much, I suppose. So I'm going to ask you what it might sound like for everyone to say in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So we're going to all say this together. with a loud, it, this, The scripture is quite clear. He's screaming this. All right? So on three. One, two, three. Lazarus, come out. Okay? One, two, three. That was really good. That was better than I could do. Go back a chapter to chapter 10. One, one preacher says that when Jesus stands at the tomb, the stone rolled over and has it rolled away, and the smell is hitting him in the face, and he's frustrated, and he's broken, and his face is wet from his tears, and he is raging at death. He screams so loud that death is scared away. It's a lovely image. But it comes right from the chapter before it. In John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about the shepherd who is supposed to watch over the sheep. And he's borrowing off of a term that shows up in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel talks about the religious leaders who are supposed to care for the flock, for the people of Israel. And they are terrible at it. They take advantage of the people of Israel. They take money from them. They take worship from them. They take advantage of them. They oppress them. They are not shepherds that God has called them to be. And so God says to them in the book of Ezekiel, fine. Fine, you've lost, you've lost your chance. No longer will you be the shepherd for my sheep. In fact, I, I will shepherd my sheep, and I will call for them, and they will know who I am. And so, John chapter 10, Jesus says to the religious leaders, Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs over by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep, the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They don't recognize a stranger's voice, and Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in, and they will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. When Jesus stands at that place of death, he's standing right there in front of the thief who has stolen his best friend, and he rages, and he calls. Lazarus, come out! And because the sheep know his voice and the shepherd knows his name, out wobbles this, this dead man with rags hanging off. My kids are pretty well behaved, uh, but if you've got kids, you know this this incident that happens to every parent or everybody who's just seen a child. And it's that at some point when they're playing with a ball, that ball rolls 
down the driveway and rolls out into the middle of the road. And for some reason, children forget that a road is a road when their ball rolls into the middle of it. And so they take off. Have you had this happen to you before? And what do you do as a parent or as somebody who knows that kid? You yell at him to stop because there is, there is danger up ahead. And you hope and you pray that that child knows your voice among all the other noises around them so that they stop before they fall off that cliff or they walk into the middle of traffic or they stay stuck in the grave when life is calling them out. That is the image here. Let's go back to that verse. Jesus wept. There's a couple of different ways you could say this, and I'm going to re- read a couple for you. Because this is the moment, this is the scripture that takes those two lists and it collapses them into one another. See, it was really important for early Christian theology that God didn't suffer, that God didn't change, because the world around them was always changing. There was nothing stable or controlled about it. And so God, if God was going to be sovereign over creation, God needed not be subject to creation. And so everything that moves and pushes and pulls us, the emotions, the inflections, the anger, the love, the passion, all of that, well, that's on our side of the equation. And on God's side of the equation is this distant, resolved, impermeability, unchanging nature. That doesn't work for very long. If you've ever talked to anyone who is suffering or anyone who has lost somebody, that image of God is distant and removed, unemotional. It just falls flat. One writer says, the only credible theology for an Auschwitz, for something that terrible, is one that makes God an inmate of the place. A couple of other ways you could say that. At the most basic level, it's a consolation to those who suffer to know that God suffers too and understands their situation from within. The psychological effect on a sufferer of being aware of a suffering God who understands his predicament may be below the level of theological argument, but it may be in the end soar on wings far higher than any formal theodicy can. No theological argument can justify the mountain of misery represented by an Auschwitz or a Hiroshima or anything like that. Someone else says it this way. If we take seriously the idea that God cannot suffer or experience passions, we've either rewrite the scriptures or treat them as a collection of books embodying primitive anthropomorphic conceptions of God. The love and wrath of God, his mercy, his ardent desire that Israel should worship him and him alone, his justice and his serious concern for the welfare of his people, it ends up being meaningless. That's a lot of words when you could just say, Jesus wept. In the middle of a world that is broken and in its breaking breaks us. What we need in those moments is a God who is close. A God who might even feel what we are feeling. Jesus wept. Another way we could say that is Jesus was pathetic. You can feel it even in that word, right, that that is a derogatory statement, that Jesus would be pathetic. Pathetic comes from the word pathos, which is the word for passion. But even when we talk about it now, we label it as something else. For instance, if I said, uh, don't cry like a, 
like a baby or like a, like a girl, already that deep emotion that breaks us open, it gets, it gets classified as it's the wrong kind of way to be in the world. Toughen up. When I was in seminary, I got a call from my dad, and it just said, call me back. And so I called him back because that's the kind of text you don't ignore. And uh, he told me that a friend of mine from childhood had died and went on to, this kid was just started college, young, died tragically. And I remember in that moment, in that empty room where I was talking to my dad, when I hung up the phone, I, I broke down. And I cried for quite a while before I gathered myself and went back to class. And, and over time, the story started to come in from this kid's life. And then my parents, who were very close with his parents, told me about the funeral. And they told me the story about his youngest sister. And his sister was in uh, high school at the time. No, she was younger than that. She wasn't even in junior high. So we're talking about an 11 or a 12-year-old here. And at the, after the funeral, when they were visiting with folks who had come, a lot of well-meaning adults found her. And they said to her, they knelt down, talked to this young girl who's lost her oldest brother, and said, you need to be strong for your mom and dad right now because they need you. And what they were telling her in that moment was to not break down. What they were telling her in that moment was the higher course of action was to stuff it and be strong. So she did. She stuffed it for the whole day. And then when she got home, she broke down. Of course she did. How could she not? There comes a problem that we encounter well, as humans, but also as people of faith, that this world is just not right. We all have our examples of this. I know intimately a lot of yours because we talk about it often. But everybody here has this moment when the floor falls out from under you. And your pain feels so intimate and personal. Nobody could know what it is I'm going through. And in the midst of that pain, there will come questions that flood to the surface. And they might lead you to answers like that list of cliches. Like, what is happening here? Is this part of God's plan? Did God know? Why would God let this happen? Did God really need another angel or another rose in his garden? Is God giving me a test that I'm trying to learn from? What is this message? Is God lost? Is God ignoring me? Did I do something wrong here? These are the deep questions that lay just right under the surface in the middle of suffering and pain, particularly in the midst of death. And it's tempting to paint over them with quick phrases. But what Jesus shows us in this story, Jesus shows us with his life. If God becoming flesh means anything, it means 
that God knows what this is like. This isn't a distant thought experiment for God. God does not think self into our pain, but in, in Christ, God enters into our pain. Takes spirit and flesh and holds them together. One writer, Anne Lamott, she says that the greatest sermon that could ever be preached is just two words. Me too. And she was a recovering alcoholic, has been sober now for over 30 years, but she says that when she first hit rock bottom and everything was gone, and she finally reached out to a friend who had helped her brother get sober. She says she entered into a room with a bunch of people whose lives had completely broken them, and they gathered around her, and they poured her water, and they held her, and they listened to her stories, and they said to her, guess, guess what, And me too. I know. And she says that Christ is God saying to the entire world, to you and to me and all of us, me too. We say that you can't go around suffering and death, but the way to new life is through it. And the reason we say that is because that is what Christ did. Did not ignore it. Ignore death's actual destructive powers like a thief that comes to take what is not his. But walks right into the midst of it. Stands at the edge of the tomb as the stone's been rolled away and death's smell wafts into the air and screams and scares it for a moment. Now the story keeps referring to Lazarus as a dead man and if you keep reading John's gospel, every time Lazarus shows up, it's the one who had died. It's that death kind of clings to him and, and we know this too, that death kind of clings to us and it's not just the death that will show up whenever cancer gets the best of you or you get in a car wreck or it's just time for you to lay down and not get back up. It's a death that trails us like a shadow because there are a hundred ways to die before your brain stops working and your breath ceases. And when Paul talks about Christ defeating death, it's that which pulls us down, both physically into the ground, but in a hundred other ways. So Christ walks to the place of death, squares it off face to face, and then falls as well. We talk often about the Christian life being that of following Christ, taking up our cross and walking with Christ. And we say that because the way to new life is the path carved out before us. It goes right into a grave. You bury all of your hope, all of your dreams with Christ. And you do this because you believe have a deep faith that that tomb doesn't stay full. And that that thing that keeps beating us over and over again has in fact been defeated. You believe it in faith. 
Death is an enemy that has come to kill and to destroy. And we use the name death with a capital D because it is not just something that happens to us. It it feels like a force out there in the world. When Jesus encounters it with his best friend, it breaks him apart and he cries. He weeps at the tomb. And his tears, they start something. There's this lovely verse at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation. And it says that when, when heaven comes crashing down to earth, and that process where spirit and flesh are made one becomes the reality for everything. When the place where God is and the place where we are are the same place. And it says there will be no more, there will be no more tears. Which makes me think that up until that point, we're the kind of people who would do well to cry. We don't pretend that it doesn't hurt. We don't skip past it when it breaks us or it breaks the ones we love. Holding our hearts out to God. That's what we've always done. We do it because it's one way that we rage against the dying of the light in this world. And ask God to keep God's promises. We're going to ask it again today that God would keep God's promises. That this feeling we go through, this brokenness that finds us, is not the end of a story. Let's pray. Dear God, we have those we've loved. But none of their stones have been rolled away. And in their death, we didn't have supper with them the next day. It's just a brokenness and an absence. Forgive us for when we make islands of our grief when we push others and you away because this is our our special thing, our moment. We have never been alone. You've always been with us. Meet us now, meet us here in the season of Lent as we try our very best to stay with you on this journey. If in fact a death is at the center of our story, then give us courage to walk up to that cliff with you. As the world breaks, around us, you know, in so many ways. Let us know that you know and that you are somewhere raging, snorting with anger at forces that are still alive. And we pray one day you'd put those in the ground 
that we could take everything we love out of the ground and bring it back to us. Now is the waiting. So give us patience and hope and the promise of resurrection. Pray this in the name of Jesus who goes before us all the way down into the valley of shadows and climbed back out. Amen.